Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast where we study data science leadership. We get the tips, strategies, and mistakes directly from executives in this space. My name is Felipe Flores. I am your host. Thank you so much for being here. Today, I speak with Barrett Hasseldine. Barrett is a super interesting guy and one of the leaders based in Melbourne, Australia. He is currently the head of modeling at Ilian Australia and New Zealand. Ilian was formerly known as Dunn & Bradstreet, and it's a leading independent provider of trusted data analytics products and services in Australasia. Before this, Barrett was head of credit and analytics at Nimble Australia, which is a, a lender in the Australian market. And before that, he was head of client analytics at Vida. He has a wealth of experience, and it was great to sit down and speak with him about his trajectory and his learnings to be shared. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Here's the interview with Barrett. Hi, this is Felipe. Today I'm speaking with Barrett. Mate, thank you so much for making the time. I've been looking forward to catching you for a while, so this is great. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. So thank you very much for having me in. Pleasure to, to uh, finally be on the show. Mate, it is fantastic to have you on the show. Tell me, first of all, how did you get started in the world of data? Started, I think, pretty far back. So I guess I brought up in a household where dad's a, an accountant, so it was always very numeric. And mum was a teacher, so she loved giving me maths problems that were ahead of my levels, pushing me on that as a little kid. So oh, I've always, always loved maths. And so took that forward through to high school and then university, did a, a science degree. And there I actually thought I wanted to be like a biologist, a marine biologist, something like that to do with animals. And in first year, I pretty quickly found that in actual fact, I might have a biology assignment due tomorrow and a maths assignment due the week after, but I'd do the maths assignment first because it's just <laughs> more fun. And so for me, I guess I really just love love the maths and I guess the way the industry and everything's going, kind of you can't really do that much maths applied to business without the data. So yes. that's where that all started to feed in. So I think for me, I really just love getting the worlds of maths and business together yeah. trying to just kind of smash them together and see how you can try and solve business problems using maths. I mean, I think when I was undergrad, I really thought that was already happening. That was a while ago. And so I did operations research because I thought like that's kind of optimization. So I thought that that would be what businesses want to do. They want to optimize stuff. And then when I left uni, I was very disheartened to see that basically no businesses did any of that back yeah. then. And so it was kind of unsettled issue in my career that, you know, businesses, they need to be doing more and more of this analytics. And it's just fantastic nowadays, which is what makes me really excited about the industry. Businesses actually using maths and data to do stuff better. So it's really awesome time to be in the industry. Why did you pick operations research? Dad was kind of a banker, so he always was talking about the industry and, and credit. And so I knew that lenders want to make better decisions. They wanted to optimize their profits or maximize them, I guess. Every business I thought wanted to do something regarding optimizing something, whether it's getting costs down, revenues up or profit up. And so I just thought that optimization would be something that's quite relevant. Yeah. I think my true passion really was pure maths. So yeah. pure maths and OR. And I really loved the pure because that was black and white. Either something's right or it's wrong. There was no gray. In actual fact, the worst subject I did in my whole degree was stats. I did not do a very good job of that at all. And yeah. so it is totally okay to be terrible at stats, but highly numeric. 
I'm so glad you're saying that. Yeah, I I had a similar um, experience where I did an engineering and business dual degree and I did the engineering stats first and it like nearly killed me. And then I was doing the business stats, like the requirements. And I was like walking the park. (laughs) But yeah, I never felt that I was strong in it either. That's really interesting. Yeah. And so basically when I was in my final year of university, there's a company that came in called Experian, did a presentation to us about the world of credit scoring. So credit scoring, just to give a quick intro into that, is it's the idea of a credit provider wanting to make a decision on how to handle a person who's, for example, applying for credit. So a person walks in off the street, maybe the credit provider gets to find out 20, 30, 100 bits of data about this person, but they don't necessarily know how to weight these different bits of information. Maybe they're very young, but maybe they've already got a home loan, or maybe they're near retirement age. What do all these things mean? Maybe they're new in their job. And so credit scoring is the art of trying to join all these different bits of information to come up with effectively a single number that represents how risky that person is. That's what I found myself doing in third year uni and then went straight into a job at Experian once I left. And I didn't really fully know what I was doing when I started there. I remember my title was business analyst and um, yeah, I got asked, so what what do you actually do there? And I really, I I had no idea at the very beginning (laughs) and took me quite a while to work it out. And so because I didn't really know, I think I actually learned quite a lot about horse racing. Because one of the people I was working with really into his book baking and, and gambling. And so he <laughs> kind of introduced me to this world of, you know, there's all this data out there about horses. And then you can see the outcomes and you can see the odds. And actually, that's how I kind of learned some of my coding was actually by trying to download or, or scrape horse racing data off the internet, merge that on with the odds and a couple of other different data sources. So you kind of get practice at data gathering, data wrangling, shaping it all up. Uh, thinking about what the business problem is. So being able to, you know, pick either a winner or top three, whatever it might be. And so then build models to be able to, I guess, meet that objective and then design strategies around how to use those models to optimize profit. And so, and then monitoring them as well. So it kind of was this nice little non-work use case that I managed to spend a little bit of time, don't tell my employer back then, um, during (laughs) work time to actually tackle. But I think I actually was a much better analyst because of being able to spend time on that. Yes, definitely. Um, Because you're doing the end-to-end process, a complete value chain. Yeah, exactly. So it was, I mean, I did actually do some credit analytics work as well. <laughs> on the side. Um, on the side. Um, but yes, actually, I remember my first project was actually for one of the big four banks in Australia. Yeah. Uh, I was a, a model to help their commercial credit risk assessments. And I'll remember it because it was a big mistake that was made during the project. So did all this fantastic data work to be able to come up with a view of, I guess, at the parent company level, how much risk is attached to this credit application. So I built this model, the results were looking fantastic, finished off the project and gave it to the client. And the client then went, oh, we don't have IT systems that are at this parent company level, we can't actually implement your model. Oh. And the whole thing got scrapped. That was a big lesson learned there, that building, just because you can kind of build a model and it looks to tick a lot of boxes, if it can't actually be used or implemented or used to make actual decisions that are value-adding, it's useless. Yeah. So that was something I learned very early on, and I think that's something I've kind of held with me the whole career, is there's more than just the predictive power of a model that is important. It's a really good lesson. Yeah, Mm. and it's good to learn it early on. Correct. First project. Uh, yeah, exactly. Project, yeah. exactly. Yeah, I remember one of the, um, later on in my career, one of the guys in my team said to me, I don't need to know the context behind this project. Just give me the data file and I'll build you the most predictive model ever. 
I had a couple of challenges with, <laughs> with that kind of a statement. For example, uh, based on the fact that, you know, if you build the most predictive model, then can it actually be implemented? If you could implement it, how much is it going to cost? <laughs> uh, how long would it take to implement? All these other considerations in terms of interpretability, you know, does a regulator need to see this model? If so, are they even going to give it the time of day or not? I've been a big proponent since then of understanding the context behind the data you've got. And so usually we're doing these works because we want to solve some kind of a future business problem. Like how do we want to make business decisions in the future more effective than what we have in the past? To solve that future business problem, all we've got is data from the past. There's a couple of issues there is that one, the past data might not actually look anything like the past business environment. Often maybe it's stored in some warehouse that actually is transformed and doesn't actually reflect production. And also, who's to say that the historic business environment is actually going to look like the future? Yeah. Maybe there was some product that was offered in the past that's no longer offered in the future. Although I remember there was one project I worked on, a customer had cut off all operations to the eastern seaboard. So a lot of their past data was from Queensland, oh, wow. New South Wales, etc. And if we hadn't had that one conversation, then we would have built them a model that would have worked beautifully Australia-wide, but might not have worked so well in the area that they actually cared about. And that's because, I guess, changing business needs. So that kind wow. of contextual knowledge is something I've really tried to hammer home in a lot of the work that I do because you can't really do something effectively without it. Do you find that this is something that people are thinking enough about? The contextual knowledge, the mm. business decisions that will affect the rollout of a model? Yeah. Uh, do you see that enough in the market? I think it depends where you look. Yeah. So in some areas, it's really the important point for a long time. So the area of credit analytics, I mean, it used to be probably most of analytics was credit analytics yeah. back 40, 30, 40 years ago. And that was kind of, I guess, that plus insurance was some of the earliest kind of use cases in business. And so there's a long history of knowing that if you don't think about the context, then things can go very wrong. And you need to build something that's going to be robust throughout an economic cycle, etc. And that's because you build a model and you use it for many years. Whereas I think in other use cases, such as propensity model as part of a marketing campaign, potentially the model gets built very quickly, gets used once and then thrown away. In those kind of situations, I think a little bit less attention needs to necessarily be paid to, I guess, some of those other contextual factors. It's still very important, but I think it just holds a different weight. And so I think definitely one of the things I've found when I came out of uni, I just wanted to solve maths problems. I didn't know that I wanted to solve business problems. In fact, I really kind of thought they were just two of the same thing. But in actual fact, I think that's one of the things that makes an analyst great is when they can actually see the business problem and understand that context instead of just seeing it as a maths problem to be solved. Interesting. That's something I think is definitely one thing to coach new graduates, et cetera, to make sure they can actually see the broader picture of what they're trying to, what they're trying to achieve opposed to just solving a maths problem. How did that change start for you, going from seeing it as a maths problem to looking mm. at the business side? It probably changed through getting things wrong. So like that project I mentioned earlier about the big four bank that I worked with, there I solved the maths problem. I did a great job, but just the maths problem was totally misaligned with what the business problem was. I think I learned pretty early on that you can't just treat it as a math problem. Mm -hmm. You need to view the, the whole context. And so pretty early on in my career, I knew that I wanted to do an MBA. That was something, I think I was about two or three years into my career and I thought, wow, i just learning about business, but I'm learning too slowly. I needed this kind of artificial injection of business knowledge. Right. It was probably about seven years into my career that I actually went part-time, did an MBA at Melbourne Business School, yep. which is just absolutely fantastic. Um, it was about three years of hard slog, part-time, evenings, weekends, etc. But it was invaluable. 
to my career. Was it? 100% invaluable. Why? So I guess the key things for me is one, the ability to have, I guess, a broader perspective of business and be able to have broader conversations was, I think, one of the really key things. So for example, you learn about marketing, you learn about operations, you learn about finance, et cetera. And so being able to then meet with someone who's trying to solve a business problem and maybe I've not done any work in mining, but if I spoke to someone who is from mining, I've done enough case studies within my MBA that I kind of get some of the issues. So we'd be able to at least start from some starting point of being able to have the conversation with them. Or if they're in a finance team that I'd know what kind of metrics they really care about and how they're defined and what kind of levers you can pull to adjust them. That's the kind of thing I just knew nothing of having only done a maths degree. And so I think without that, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't have made the career advances that I, I have made. I definitely recommend it to any listeners who really want to complement their kind of mathematical or data science skills. Doing a, an MBA, I personally found really, really, really helpful. The other part of it was people management. Yeah. So after about four years of my career, I kind of, I've been working in credit risk analytics and I needed to make the call. Do I want to broaden my skill set mm-hmm. and take on other areas of the industry? So I guess my career aim back then was to become a chief risk officer at a, at a bank. Nice. And so you needed credit risk, operational risk, interest rate risk, all these different areas of risk. And so I was kind of faced with a fork in the roads. Do I broaden that skill set and bolt on all those other bits of analysis doing them myself or... Do I stick with an area I know really well, just the credit risk analytics, and then take on management responsibility and start to learn that kind of softer skill piece, which is going to be transferable to anything else? And so I guess the reason I chose to go into management was because I don't think I'd actually know when to stop bolting on additional things. I'd probably just keep going from one to the next to the next to the next, picking up and enjoying that new information. But then I wouldn't actually be advancing in terms of my softer skills, which, to be honest, were probably the skills that I needed the most work on. So really? Took, yeah, 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 absolutely. Wow. Yeah. So I guess one thing I got from people management for the first time was that people don't really follow equations, which is completely obvious, but um, not something that uh, necessarily came to me at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are probably two equations which I think are actually kind of interesting from people perspective. Yeah. So maybe I'll, I'll call them out. One is the idea of equity theory where a person typically, or the idea is that a person will put in effort commensurate to what they get out of the job and they'll look at kind of like the ratio of them relative to others and so if there's a person that is they think they're getting paid the same as someone else but they're putting in more effort then what they might do is actually adjust down their effort to get I guess uh, that equity ratio similar to others or similarly if there's someone that thinks that for the same level of effort someone at a different company is getting paid more then they might try and do less effort because they think that they're getting rewarded less and therefore they should actually put in less. It's a theory. I don't know how much data there is behind it, but it is an actual one. And I've definitely seen it it kind of play out in the work environment. It's, I guess, one thing to keep in mind for people managers out there that can be a reality. The, the other one was a, what's called two-factor theorem, which one of my team taught me, which is that you can have all these things that make work better, all these benefits in terms of We used to go and do yoga as a team. We used to do bubble soccer and all these kind of cool things, which is awesome. It was great for the team. Those, I guess, help to improve things. But no matter how good the good were, if there's kind of hygiene issues, Mm. then you can't have enough good things that get rid of the hygiene issues. So if things are a problem such as a problem personality or culture or pay issues, et cetera, then no matter how good the good is, people will still potentially leave. And Mm. so... I guess those are kind of two numeric sounding theories, which I reckon I've seen come true again and again in in business. So it's certainly a thing I've kept in mind. Very interesting. How do you turn it into a positive feedback loop? It sounds like it could go 
One of the big issues with it is typically people overrate the amount of effort they put in relative to others. Yes. And they also expect that other people's salaries are higher than what they actually are. Uh huh. So, if, I mean, there's definitely surveys out there where if you say, uh, ask the question of, do you think you get paid less than average? Yeah. Something like 85% of people say they get paid less than average, <laughs> um, which is just completely impossible, depending on the distribution. That's, I guess, the kind of challenge that means it's always fighting against yeah. against it coming true. So I guess uh, just some ed- education around that to say things like recruiters quite often will will bump up the expectation of what salaries are like elsewhere. Yeah. So that's, I guess, a factor that pushes up that and kind of feeds the, the wheel of people going from job to job to job. And so that can be, I guess, one of the other factors at play. So I think there's definitely a lot of reality in the fact that where I've worked in the past, sometimes I've had a strategy of getting new recruits in as new grads Yeah. Uh, because one, generally lower cost, you can shape them in the way that you want to in terms of teaching them about the industry and the way to think about business problems. And they're often got a lot of enthusiasm, mm. uh, which is fantastic. And so one of the places I worked, their, their strategy was definitely to hire um, earlier on in career and then grow people. Now, one of the challenges that way is in the first couple of years of coming out of uni, often a person's salary for a new analyst can go up quite materially. And so it can create a real challenge that within maybe two years, their salary potentially could have jumped 40% in market or something like that. Whereas that person's going to find it very hard to get internal pay increases with that kind of magnitude. And so you end up with a couple of things. Well, one is that you've got a team that have been around for a couple of years. They feel a little bit disgruntled that, mm. you know, their friends elsewhere are getting paid more than them because they've kind of jumped ship and, and managed to get a pay increase by going to another company, which is a pretty common strategy. Yeah. Um, and that kind of has a flow on effect to increase, I guess, churn in the team. And the more longer standing members are typically the disgruntled ones, which set a bad culture for the newer ones. And you need really good knowledge management processes as well, because you've got quite a lot of turnover. So if you don't have good knowledge management, the knowledge goes out the door and then you're stuck. So there's a whole bunch of challenges with building a team of just kind of new graduates. So definitely, I've learned that having a balance of kind of newer talent and more mature talent as well, is really good to bring balance to the team. Also helps in terms of being able to delegate work, et cetera, to people that have got the experience to handle it. Yeah, exactly. I've definitely used that technique of hiring fresh grads and juniors to build up the team. And going back to the equity theory point, one of the benefits of doing that is that everyone was getting paid the same. We're all coming in at the same time. Everyone getting paid the same. Everyone working really hard. But it definitely gets a lot more nuisance when you get more people of, different levels of skill and experience in the team. Yeah, for sure. And especially, I mean, it works well within the team. And then when they start chatting to their mates about salaries or recruiters, that's when things start, um, start I guess, introducing another dimension. Yeah, yeah. going pear-shaped. How did the opportunity come uh, for you to step into management? So I guess I'd been hands-on analyst doing model builds for about four years. And I was looking around, there's a company called Vita, now called Equifax that was looking for someone to manage the client analytics team. So Mm -hmm. kind of analytic consulting to different credit providers around Australia and New Zealand. And so that looked like it was an opportunity to take what I knew and I guess uh, take on a management role along with that. So that kind of bolt on skill set. The manager of that role is just a, a fantastic, fantastic person. And so clicked immediately and just really, really loved doing that. I was given a lot of support and, and, um, 
I guess going into that not having managed before, definitely they were taking on a little bit of risk. Also, one of the challenges was, I guess at the time I was 24 years old. And so in the team of circa 20 odd people, I was one of the most senior members and yet I was the youngest. Yeah. And that was the true, that was true for probably about the first three or four years of working there. I was wow. the youngest. Wow. Until some, uh, I guess, newer grads got, got recruited into the team. An actual fact, in my previous work at Experian, I'd actually had a, a bad incident where I was guiding someone based out of China for them to learn about an area of analytics uh, called Basel II, which is to do with lenders' capital adequacy that they need to hold. And so I was training this person. It was a fantastic relationship until I met them in person. And they realized that I was 23 at the time and they were circa 40. And it created this real rift between us and kind of derailed the project I was working on because they didn't want to be taking instruction and guidance from someone who was so much younger than them. Yes. I mean, it was a brand new area of like the Basel II regulations that had only been out for a few years. And so no one really knew about it. So I was, I guess, in a privileged position of having had quite a lot of experience in it, despite it being new. But that really gave me a, I guess, a warning regarding how people might judge me because of my age. And so it was probably about five or six years into my job at Vita that I actually told people how old I was. Until then, I actually kept it secret, which was, I'm not sure to date whether that was actually a good or a bad move. It created a wall between me and my team. But I guess I was trying to preserve myself in terms of me I was scared that people might not take my opinions or perspectives as seriously. Yes. And so I felt like I needed to wait until I'd earned my stripes at Vita, for example, and before being able to tell people about that. And once I did, it was such a relief. And no one really judged me or anything, uh, which I was, I was very grateful for. But it was, um, yeah, it was definitely tough purposefully putting a barrier between my team and me, which yes. I don't think I would want to do that to, again. Wow. But, but was it necessary? I don't know. I asked because <laughs> I actually did the same. Mm. So a little bit, uh, not as young as you, but when I was 26, I think, I was managing a team of about 20 and average age was 48. I felt like like I was in diapers, right? In comparison. Mm. And I was like, I did exactly what you did. Like I didn't tell them my age. I would just try to act old. I don't know. <laughs> like, how do you do that? <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. <laughs> But I felt exactly the same way. I went about it the same solution, Mm. obviously both being, I guess, ambitious people that, you know, want to speed up our learning, Mm. be exposed to take on more responsibility. I felt like it was necessary. I think if I was in the same position again, I would actually do the same. I would love to get your perspective. I think back then, I certainly didn't have the perspective that I've got now. I think I've got a pretty good grounding now through doing an MBA, but also just life experience of what's actually kind of important in life. I think a lot of that kind of stemmed from lead up to having kids as well and and actually having kids. They kind of have a, a tendency to kind of bring a different dimension to your life that you've not actually had before. I think for me, I probably would have wanted to actually kind of open up and be open about my age then. But you know, back then I didn't have that perspective. And so I can see why I made the decision. I, back then I probably, time again, I'd probably do it the same way. Yeah. Yeah. Although um, certainly kind of feel sorry for my team in, in the very beginning. So going into people management, there really wasn't much training. I mean, you kind of learn from the people that you've had as bosses in the past. Uh, and you also learn from your own experience. And so for me, I guess I knew what had worked well for me in my career to get me to where I was. And I had just assumed that that was therefore the best way that it should be done in my team. Yeah. And so I kind of came in with, hey, here's the way that things are done. Guns blazing. Guns blazing. Trust me, I know how to do these things. Let's do it this way. And that kind of was a pretty poor strategy. 
it was with good intent to have an effective team. But it really, I guess, a couple of lessons learned from that. The way that worked for me is not necessarily the best way that it could work for other people. And so I definitely learned a healthy respect for the ideas that people put forward in my team. I think over the journey of, I guess, getting lots and lots of feedback from my team, I guess that was one of the things that kind of counted in my favor. I've always really been a fan of just continuously learning. And so being open to feedback and not being defensive about it and actually taking it on and changing was hard, but it's made me so much a a better leader than what what I was at the very beginning. Yes. Because yeah, basically it it quashed any kind of innovation or good ideas that would come from my team. And so I'm, I'm glad that that stopped after couple of years. <laughs> yes. It took me to, uh, to work out to not just do it my way, so to speak. Talk me through that moment of when you get the feedback, when you're in a leadership position and you get the feedback. Because a lot of people that are in leadership positions where they're not taking the feedback, I think they think that feedback is not being provided. And I think that people in your team would will always say, what they think could be done differently or better. I think the feedback is usually offered. It's just subtle. It's as a question or there's like a little hesitation, a bit of fear, especially if for myself, very much like you, I was like, this is the way that things should be done. (laughs) And then people are like, oh, like, what if we did it this way? And you're like, nah, nah, nah. nah, Why would you do it that way? Correct. I've tried that. It didn't work. Do it my way. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I know. I know best. So I think that the feedback comes, but the challenge that I think most people have is in seeing it for what it is, seeing Mm. it as feedback Mm. and taking that on. Walk me through your thoughts when that happens. Sure, sure. Certainly, I think most of that kind of subtle feedback would have been lost on me at the beginning. Yeah. So for me, I was very overt about wanting feedback, the annual performance review process, weeks in advance saying, look, it's about us working together. So yes, you'll be appraised, but I want you to also appraise me and give me the feedback on what I can be doing differently for team processes, as well as individual one-on-ones. And even better, let me know in the moment, don't just save it all up until the end of year, because by then it's a bit too late. Um, quite <laughs> often, the person might have already you know, fallen disengaged with the role, etc. But actually proactively seek that process and be the expectation that the members of my team will actually provide me feedback mm. and with the promise that I'll take it without judgment of them and that I'll take it in a way that's non-defensive. And then being able to do that and actually be true to the fact that you won't be defensive yeah. and that you actually do show that you're changing stuff gives the team more confidence to then be able to go, oh, okay, raise this. It was an issue now. So either some things just weren't in Barrett's control. Yes. So that's one kettle of fish, fish. But then the things that are, were actually in his control four out of the five things he's managed to prove on them. And so for me, I view myself as a learner. So that was part of the way that I can actually learn because my boss doesn't see how well I am people managing unless there's something that goes wrong and gets escalated to him. It's my team that see it day in, day out, day out of how I'm actually managing them. So they're really the true people that can give me feedback on how I can do a better job of being their boss. And so I think that's really helped me that kind of proactive stance. Yeah, that's Mm. really good. And when there is a weak offering of feedback, Mm. when there's like that either something that's being said softly or that it's, yeah, just a single comment, what do you do to bring the rest of the feedback out of the person? Do you have advices, uh, approaches, any tips? I guess reassurance that it's going to be taken in the right intent, that their intention is for us to be more effective as a team and as kind of partners in a business. And so, 
making sure they feel comfortable to be able to speak their mind, yeah. um, that it's not going to be kind of working against them. And in actual fact, if that can actually mean that we're more effective together, it means they'll enjoy their job more, we'll be more effective as a team, and I'll actually enjoy my job more because I can feel like I'm actually improving and growing. Yeah. Um, and so I guess if someone is being, being subtle, I guess being cued into that is the first thing and acknowledging that you've understood that they're trying to give feedback mm. in, in a subtle way as well. And I mean, I've generally found if someone's providing subtle feedback, then they're happy to kind of keep dropping hints here mm. and there, which means I haven't had to necessarily continue to elicit too much. But yeah, no, it's definitely though, being open to learning is, in fact, I think continually learning is probably one of the biggest tips I give to people in the industry. Yes. Just don't stop learning. I mean, we're in a fast evolving industry that there's no one that knows everything. Hence the whole idea of the imposter syndrome, which, which gets talked about quite a bit. And I don't think that's, I actually think it's possibly a positive thing that some people feel that way because it kind of pushes everyone to grow and learn and go, gee whiz, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I just don't know about. And so they go out and they learn, try, read stuff online, look up Kaggle entrants that have applied a particular technique and just better themselves. And thankfully, there's so much out there that you can actually access and try that everyone's got the opportunity to better themselves. And so I think some of that's actually driven by <laughs> this kind of idea of imposter syndrome. Yes, mm. I completely agree. What's your view on the imposter syndrome? Do you think it's something that, is it real? Is it fake? Do a lot of people have it? Not many? How mm. do you feel about it? What's your view? Definitely think it's real. And I think, I mean, I have heard someone say that it's almost the absence of it, which is an issue, um, <laughs> which I think might have actually come up in one of your other interviews that you ran, Felipe. And I definitely agree with that. I think that kind of idea that I've got all the answers, just give me the data set yeah. is a very, very dangerous one, as I was kind of alluding to earlier. And so I think that kind of can come with time as a person goes through experiences where things haven't necessarily gone the way they wanted. If someone can reflect on that to go, okay, why didn't this go so well? oh, okay, there's a whole bunch of skill sets that I don't actually have. Mm. Or what's holding me back in my career? Because I only code in one particular language, I need to pick up these other ones. And then actually just going and learning it, I think is super critical. Good man. After, once you started managing a team mm. and you had sort of your early days as a manager, how did your career evolve up to that? So I guess I, Vita, I started off, I think there were about four people in my team, something like that. And after doing my MBA, got a promotion to have a slightly bigger team, which were effectively doing similar work, but also having a manager reporting into me. And then a couple of years after that, I looked after a credit analytics team, but there was also a marketing analytics team. And so my role became to join those two teams together to actually get the marketing analytics and credit analytics teams effectively being one single team, yeah. which is something that at, at most credit providers, they're separate teams. Mm. They're completely different business functions. And they had been the case as well at, at where I was working. That was an interesting idea to, you know, should we actually try and merge the teams together? And so there is definitely some pros in getting them together. So for example, work variety was mm. a common complaint of people that were departing. And so being able to cover both marketing and credit analytics was actually a win in terms of staff being able to work on a, a greater variety of different bits of work. It also meant that from a credit perspective, the marketing was kind of upstream of a credit application coming through. And then the credit analytics started from when the person applied through to when they ended their relationship with the lender. And so it Blending the two gave us really good end-to-end -end view of how to find people who are interested in credit all the way through the life cycle. So I definitely think that that was some big wins about it. <coughs> One of the 
challenges, though, is that I guess the demands, as I was hinting at earlier, from a credit analytics lens and a marketing analytics lens are different. Typically, credit projects are kind of slow, methodical, yeah. dotting I's, crossing T's. Yes. Marketing analytics projects are short, sharp, 90% or 80%. That's good enough. Let's go do it. Yeah. Speed to market is really important. So having a single team that could go at that two-speed pace, depending on the project, is definitely a tricky one. And some of the, I guess, approaches for building models, one thing I'm, I think we did well at was being able to get some of the rigor from a credit analytics perspective and apply it to marketing analytics to kind of make that analysis a little bit better thought through, uh, which got some good outcomes, and trying to take some of the simplification that happened in a marketing model build and applying that to a credit model build. Some of that was also quite helpful as well. So I think there was some synergy there. However, I think in the end of the day, there's just different aims that are being achieved. So a risk manager as a stakeholder is low risk. They want things to be completely watertight. A marketing manager wants things yesterday. And so I think the team subsequently is is split up, but it was certainly a very interesting exercise to actually join the teams together and try and get everyone cross-skilled. So that was kind of some of the work I was doing in, in my later stages at Vita before then heading off and joining a credit provider called Nimble. So there I was in the exec team heading up credit and analytics. And so that was a very different business to what I've been in before, circa 100 employees. One of the things I really loved about it is that it was such a small business that everyone knew everyone. If you wanted to work out how a problem could be solved, you know the marketing person, you know the kind of product person and the IT person, you just set up a meeting or you just walk over to the desk and you just solve it which is fantastic because in a big business, you've got to wait for days until the right people are available. And so I think I really enjoyed the pace there. And it was definitely my first, I mean, first role as an executive team member. So absolutely learned a lot about politics, which was something that I had not really been exposed to before then. I'd been sheltered to a large degree. And look, I mean, that's probably some of the major mistakes, so to speak, or learning opportunities I've had. While I was there, I learned a lot about how to get stuff done in a business. And I think my MBA helped me a lot in trying to understand what the different business stakeholders would be interested in, what they're motivated by. And so also just understanding what people's KPIs were was really important to be able to understand the politics. Because if I knew that a particular person was incentivized to care about this particular metric, and that was at odds with my metric, then it's going to be very tricky to find a common ground with them, which is always the case that there's going to be other business units that are at odds. And so working through that was not particularly enjoyable at the time, but definitely one of the things I learned in spades while there. I asked this like having made many mistakes on the politics side, what do you wish you could have done or known before facing into the politics challenge? What would have made you better prepared? Sure. One specific call out, there's a great podcast. Am I allowed to mention other podcasts? Yes, yes, please. (laughs) Um, Called Management Tools, which is run by two guys who have an absolute pile of experience and they did a series on politics, yeah, like office politics. It was a really mature, balanced view of what it's all about wow. and how to think about it. So definitely recommend that if for any of you are struggling. I think it was like five-part series or something from a few years ago. It was, I think if I had had that knowledge and experience in applying that knowledge, mm. that would have been really, really helpful. I mean, one of the basic things is, they say, is count your votes. So if you're going to put forward an idea to a group, before you do that, <laughs> know how many people are going to vote in favor or, or against it. And if there's going to be, I guess, anyone voting against it, or you know, depending on the way the voting system works, then make sure that you actually socialize things beforehand, go and have those conversations to understand why they're going to, whether they're going to block it, 
if they're going to block it, why, and then try and work through how to come up with a happy medium to allow them to support it, maybe giving some concessions in terms of what, what's important to me. And so theory of it, I totally understand putting that in practice, that's tricky. And so that's something that I would have been fantastic to have back then, but certainly got lots of lessons to be able to reflect on how things could or should have been done. I think the first initiative I put forward, massive MPV for the net present value for the business, at least in my, in my mind, it was a no-brainer, but I didn't actually get anyone's support beforehand. Mm-hmm. And so it was just crickets when I asked who's in favor of this kind of thing. Yes. It was really quite appalling. So that was just a, a, a rookie error. And I guess something that I'm trying to internalize for the way that I go about my business in the future to be able to have the pre-conversations so that the meeting's really just formalizing something opposed to actually garnering support in the meeting. Great, great. Tip. So there's lots of really good tips in that, in, that, in that series. I said, highly recommend it. Awesome, man. And from Nimble, where did you go? Yes. So from there, I headed over to where I am right now, mm-hmm. which is a company called Ilian. So it's a data analytics company, previously called uh, Dun & Bradstreet before it was bought out by a private equity firm. And my role there is head of modeling. Anything to do with analytic products or uh, research or building mathematical models sits with me. So that's all the, uh, what I get to do there is build and, and look after all the consumer credit ratings. Yep. So if anyone out there goes to, for example, creditsimple.com.au or any of the Ilian Check Your Score websites, you can actually get a copy of your credit score, which is the ones that are created by and looked after by my team. So there's the consumer scores, there's commercial credit ratings, there's a whole bunch of marketing product that we build as well in terms of geographic views of, of credit risk, etc. And we also do a bunch of research. So some of the work we've been doing is looking into, say, the credit card market in Australia to see how it's evolving. We're also looking into the use of AI for model builds and how do we try and get the credit industry to be able to adopt more complex algorithms for their decision-making processes opposed to the more tried and true logistic regression, which is still used in most credit models around around Australia. Works works well and is very interpretable and the regulators are fine with it, etc. However, there's probably money on the table in terms of being able to use more advanced techniques. That's something I'm giving a lot of thought to at the moment. Amazing. And can you tell us a bit about that? How it's sure. Obviously, as, as much as you can. Yes, acknowledging thank, that you. There's a... thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the kind of ways we're thinking about is there's going to be some business problems that a lender would not want to use effectively a black box algorithm mm-hmm. to make decisions based on. So the decision of whether you need Jimmy Jojo should get a home loan or not, you probably want to be able to explain whether you why you approve them or not. And so that's going to be a kind of use case where it's going to be harder to feed in an AI system into the decision, whereas there's going to be some decision-making processes that maybe are a bit more amenable to it, where it's maybe kind of back office decisions that are not actually observable to the consumer. Those kind of ones are maybe more palatable to some credit providers. And there's also going to be, I think, different hesitation towards the use of complex models between, say, big four versus some of the more fintech entrants into the market. So I think it would be, I guess, really interesting to see how that plays out. But I don't think the regulators in Australia have that much incentive to want to allow the big banks to start using complex and and somewhat untested models to kind of bring stability to the market and to make sure that things are going to be fine during an economic downturn. And these types of models using neural networks, et cetera, haven't necessarily been tested during a downturn. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done 
from a system-wide perspective to be able to get the industry comfortable with using these types of models and when it's appropriate to use them and how to maintain them, how to monitor them, et cetera. So there's a lot of thought going in there. The team's also doing a lot on, the, I guess, the interpretability of those models to Great. be able to use things like Sharp and Lime to be able to pick out, you know, what's this neural net come up with? Why did this person get the credit rating that they got based on this neural network? And then trying to learn from that, what can we see was picked out by the neural net that wasn't picked out by a more traditional technique? And then is there something that we can borrow from that? So yeah, that's that's some of the work we're, we're doing at the moment. So Amazing. it's really, really fun. That's great. When you go to create a new product in your team, what does the process look like? Typically, if it's a rebuild of an existing product, uh-huh. then it'll be slightly different. Because then it's all about, I guess, how does the current model perform? Is it performing up to standard or does it have some deficiencies or not even deficiencies? Is there opportunity to improve it? Yeah. Maybe there's a new data source that we've, we've acquired, which could actually add incremental value above and beyond the old version of the model, which didn't use that new data source. That's usually, I guess, the, the first step for a rebuild of a, of a current product. Whereas for a brand new product, it will be typically started from either an idea, which we then put forward to a client mm-hmm. to say, hey, credit provider or whatever the target market is. Here's an idea. What do you think? Let's throw it around. Okay. Um, Before doing any work on it. Correct. Nice. So if we can get some kind of positive feedback from customers to say, hey, look, when are you actually going to bring this product to market? We want it. There's one at the moment that my teams should be working on this year that we've had a couple of different customers say, come on, you guys, we want this in market. There isn't one. So go and build it, please. Great. Um, So that's the kind of thing that gets us really excited and go, good. There's a customer need, which means it's hopefully going to be a good chance that we can actually bring it to market and recover the cost of the build plus some. And so then I guess in terms of how to go about doing the build, it's really quite different for each. I mean, some of our models are built, I guess, on-premises and implemented on-premises. Some of them are up in AWS in terms of the build and implementation. And so picking, I guess, the right environment to fit the data and the operational realities of it. So, for example, if there's something that is majority on-premises, but then we need to do a call out to AWS to calculate uh, some kind of a score and then return the score back to our premises before then passing it on. If that's going to cause an unacceptable delay in terms of timing of, of the response times, then we can't use AWS as the implementation environment. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot of those, I guess, kind of realities which we need to face. But we're constantly trying to look through how what are the alternatives of how can we do stuff better? Nice. How do we bring the build environment and the implementation environment closer so that we don't need to build in SAS and R and then copy the instructions out to an Excel spreadsheet and give it to a developer who then codes it in a mixture of C-sharp and XML. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which then we do UAT in between the output of that and SAS, for example, mm. which is quite painful. And so there's some great ideas we've got and we're trying out at the moment of using a single environment for both build and implementation, which hopefully will mean that we can speed up model builds and implementation cycles, making them cheaper, means we can bring things to market faster. A little bit new in terms of what we're trying out, but uh, hopefully it plays out well. Amazing. Mm. Do you need the involvement of many other teams to get a product out? Yeah, so I guess we're lucky enough to have a a product team that do a lot of the information gathering from customers and Uh putting together requirements and understanding how to commercialize it and doing all the product collateral, et cetera. So, and then there's IT to work through getting all the data flows working in the background and potentially a lot of the implementation, which means we kind of get to focus on starting from the raw data, building the product, I guess the the analytic algorithm, and then actually then monitoring it once it goes live and kind of focusing on the analytics piece without needing to get too deep into the, I guess, the productization of it, so to speak, which is awesome, means we can 
build models faster. Correct. That's mm. a really good setup. How do you measure the potential demand for a new product? So we know roughly how much a new product on average would cost us to build, you know, just as a ballpark. I guess one of the ways that it can work is that if there's a single credit provider who is large enough to justify us building it, even if they're the only customer of it, that's one situation which yes. makes it quite neat. It's nice that we've got some big organizations in, in this country. More likely, though, it's going to be assessing there's these maybe five different credit providers that are interested in this. Each one's maybe a 50% likelihood and then putting some rough estimates around what value we think this product will deliver to that business. Mm -hmm. So if it's to improve fraud prediction and their fraud losses may be able to drop by 10%, for example, just making up numbers here, then that gives us a bit of a sense of how much value it might be delivering. Yes, Credit providers often want a five to one or a 10 to one return on investment, in which case then it gives us a bit of a ballpark of what they'd be willing to pay for a product and we can work backwards from there whether it's worth building it. So Great. that kind of starting with the customer and then going back to, I guess, right-size the product to make sure it delivers value without breaking the bank. That's kind of the, kind of the approach we, um, we use generally. Amazing. Mm. That's excellent, man. To shift gears a, a bit, I'll, I'll hit you up with some of the rapid-fire questions. All right. The first one is, with everything that you've done in your career, what are you most proud of? I think probably, other than just maintaining decent work-life balance at the moment, which is important, I think probably in my current role, one of the, I guess my team's kind of made up of some highly experienced individuals who have been in industry for many decades. They understand the deep contextual knowledge of what's going on. However, they're not necessarily across the latest machine learning type approaches. The other half of my team is quite the opposite which is relatively new in market, very up-to-date on all the latest packages that are available in Python and R to be able to do deep neural nets and gradient boosting, whatever it might be, but don't necessarily have the deep expertise of the domain knowledge. Yes. And so getting those two worlds together to be able to get the modern and the more traditional approaches benefiting from each other, that's what I'd just I'm really excited about at the moment. Yes. I've been wanting to do that for a while in this role at Alien. I'm just pumped that I get to actually kind of bring the two worlds together and try out some really cool new things. It's also, I mean, it's helped by, I guess, the leaders in the business, very data-driven. They understand the value of analytics. If they get the value, they'll just back it, which is fantastic to be able to come to work knowing that you've got the support of the business. I guess the flexibility to be able to go and chase something new, even if it won't work, you've given it a go and had the chance, and then hopefully there's enough of those things that play out well that you've got a, a couple of good news stories at the back of it. That's right. Mm. Yeah, that's really great, man. And what do you think are current and future challenges in the industry? What do you think are some of the things that we're dealing with and coming up? I think some of the issues I mentioned regarding, especially in the credit analytics space, regarding regulators and yes. choosing which business decisions are okay to use models that are a bit more opaque. That's, I think, a challenge that's going on right now and will continue to play out for quite a while. I think that kind of really ties in with the whole model interpretability piece as well. So there's a lot of work that has been done and there's a lot more that needs to be done in terms of working through what that looks like. And I think one of the key challenges is going to be tracking how these types of more AI models actually behave through different economic times, for example. I guess one of the concerns is if there's credit or insurance underwriting that's being heavily influenced by an AI, 
how is that AI going to actually behave throughout an economic cycle? Even if you update it frequently, is that okay? I mean, how do you actually kind of track that and, and know whether or not it's going to continue to make sensible decisions, given that the correlations that existed in the good times aren't necessarily going to be present in the bad times, and you can have things crash quite quickly as well. Mm. So I think that's an area which I'd like to continue to look into further. If we can get more information about that over the next years, maybe it takes another downturn to be able to get enough data around it. But I think that's going to be something interesting that will help to, um, I guess, build more confidence in moving to some very important decisions being made off neural networks, etc. Very nice. Mm. How do you choose what to work on for you and, and for your teams? So there's you're straddling two different worlds, such different worlds, mm. between sort of the, the traditional side and the new techniques. You have a mountain of data, you're able to create products, you got client requests coming in, or how do you choose what to work on? It's a constant challenge with difficulty is probably the answer there. I think one of the things that I guess is my benefit is that Ilian, where I work, is quite clear on what's a priority. There's certain areas where we just need to focus on those areas yeah. and, and there's going to be certain deadlines that just have to be achieved. And so those ones are going to be ones that typically will get high priority. When we're working with a client, those typically will come first because it's, it's very clear if we're, say, lagging behind. When it's a product build, then those are the ones where I guess every month of delay is a delay in potential revenues generated by the product. Mm. So there's a real impetus to make sure that that's, they're delivered on time and are performing the way they need to be performing. And then with the research work we do, that's probably the most flexible work we do. So it's something that can be chipped away at in the background. It's still very important. And I guess one of the key things is it's a bit more removed how to commercialize some of the research work that we're doing. And so because there's not a, an immediate revenue imperative to be able to deliver a certain piece of research, mm. it's something that we can kind of chip away at at you know, 30% of a person's time or whatever it might be, just to make sure that we are actually moving the dial forward while also keeping the lights on. So mm. it's constant challenge to be able to make sure that we've got, I guess, the right people, got enough people. We're focusing on the, the right business problems. And thankfully, there's a lot of awesome ideas, which means our to-do list is chockers. Yeah. It's, it's just a matter of whether it's the incredibly high value one or the very high value one, which is, which is, <laughs> yes. which is awesome. Amazing. Mm. You mentioned that early in your career, your aim was to be a chief risk officer. Has that updated? And if so, what would that, the answer to that question be now? Good question. So yes, it's definitely changed. I think that during my MBA, there were some leadership subjects I did that really made me question a lot about what's got me to this point and, and motivations and what's important in life. Interesting. And so as part of that, absolutely, I threw away that intention to become a chief risk officer at a, at a bank because there actually was no reason for me to have that. I had that aim because at the time analytics was credit risk. There's a bit of marketing analytics and there's a bit of insurance analytics, but credit was the vast majority of it. And so I knew that I wanted to have the ability to, I guess, influence where a team is going in terms of their analytic work. And so the most senior that could go would be a CRO at a bank, for example. I think since then, the world of analytics has opened up so much more broadly than just credit. I'm really loving the fact that I get to work in insurance and some marketing work and credit work in my current role. And so that's kind of helping me to grow on a few different fronts. I think also, 
I guess having kids kind of gave me the perspective of, of what's actually important in life, which was, I guess, to enjoy myself and also to enrich others' lives. Neither of them to do with me being a particular role or a particular level of seniority, etc. But if I can enjoy what I do, you know, it talks to work-life balance, etc. And if I can, um, you know, enrich other lives, which is, you know, being a present husband, father, I can be the bread earner if that's my role in the family, do all those kind of things and enjoy myself, then it doesn't really matter what role I hold. So that's something that's really helped me to guide my career choices since then. And so I don't actually have a particular role I want to be in. I guess want to be working on those two life aims. And I guess work takes up so many hours of a person's week that if you're doing a job that doesn't actually help you to achieve your life aims, then there's a whole missed opportunity to be able to be working towards your life aims for you know that 50 or whatever hours per week. If you can tackle them while doing your job, you'll be just so much happier. Yes. Um, and so I'm in this beautiful position at the moment where I'm doing a job that I just absolutely love and ticking all the boxes at the moment. So it's awesome. Amazing. Mm. Oh, man. I need to learn this perspective from you more. <laughs> I feel like I'm in early days of that journey. So the, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. <laughs> Mate, this has been an absolute pleasure. I only have one last question for you. What is a piece of advice that you would like to leave the listeners with? Conscious of the fact that it might have been what you just said, but if there's anything besides that. Yeah, yeah. One piece of advice is, is tricky. I can give dozens of bits of advice. Definitely getting that perspective is, is important. And to be honest, that takes time. I think probably one of the key things is just don't stop learning. I touched on that earlier in terms of the imposter syndrome mm. and also just the fact that we're such a fast-moving industry yeah. that if you do stop learning, you'll start feeling, gee whiz, I know nothing. I personally go to quite a lot of meetup groups. Thankfully, I live in Melbourne. There's so many different meetup groups in Melbourne around data science. It's fantastic. There's lots of free online courses that you can do. And there's just lots of reading you can do on the web. Plus, I guess, accompanying that with if you feel like you want to get to a particular career goal, I guess what I did was just think about what I would need, what capabilities and skills I need at that level, and then just map out a plan to get there Mm. and then just action that plan. It sounds really kind of basic, but it was fundamental to really me being able to, I guess, take control of my own career. Yeah. and my own life more broadly. So that'd be uh, top tips. Amazing. Thank you so much, mate. This has been an absolute blast. Thank you for sharing your tips, your insights, your lessons learned and being you know, very open and vulnerable with the, the challenges that you face and how you're overcoming them and what they taught you. And then leaving us with such amazing perspective of what to actually value in life. Can't thank you, thank you enough. No, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure and good fun. Thank you, Amazing. Mate. I wanted to tell you about the RMIT Online Masters of Data Science Strategy and Leadership. I was one of the industry advisors for this program. It's an online master's program and it covers both data science strategy and leadership and it has also a technical component. Highly, highly recommend it for people wanting to get ahead. With the program, you can gain this advanced strategic leadership and data science capabilities required to influence executive leadership teams and deliver organization-wide solutions. For more information, visit online.rmit.edu.au.
I wanted to tell you about We Are Rubix, one of Australia's leading pure data consulting companies delivering project outcomes for some of the world's leading brands. Growing rapidly and with offices in Melbourne, Sydney, and the US, Rubix are as serious about analytics as they are about their pinball. True story, they have like 10 pinball machines in their Melbourne head office. If you're interested in joining a passionate and vibrant team who make work fun, head to wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That's wearerubix, all one word, wearerubix.com and get in touch today. That brings this episode to conclusion. Thank you so much for listening. Please find us on datafuturology.com or on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or Instagram as Data Futurology. Also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes. If you like this episode, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you. Thanks again and see you next time.